This morning, we're going to take a little break from our study of the Valley of Elah and the battles that we face in order to address some questions. Normally, the first Sunday evening of each month, we have our question and answer lesson on Sunday evenings. But uh, since we've had our summer series, the month of June, and well, again, this month, I decided to move it to this morning to be able to address some questions that have been asked, and uh, we'll try to present them. This morning, I would like to again point out that we need to be the seeking kind of people. We ought to be the kind of people looking for answers from God's Word. And we ought to always want to be fair and honest as we approach the Scriptures. In John chapter 5, verse 39, the Jews that did not believe in Jesus, he said, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But Luke records about the people of Berea, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So we ought to be the kind of people who search God's word and seek. And we've talked about the various kinds of questions that can be asked. Some are textual, and we have one of those this morning. Some can be topical, and our first question will be a topical question. And then finally, some are practical and Our second question this morning will be one that is in the category of practical. The first question that was asked is, what does the word supplication mean and what does it have to do with prayer? Now this is an important topic because if you think about it, I can see why it would be easy for one to be confused because the terms prayer and supplication are found in 23 passages together. And when you look at each of them, sometimes, as in the book of Psalms, the word prayers and supplications are synonymous. They're parallels. And so you would say that a prayer is a supplication, a supplication is a prayer. On the other hand, though, there are a number of other passages where prayers and supplications are distinct. I believe they're overlapping, but they are distinct. One of these is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. And there Paul says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that prayers, supplications, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men. Now when you look at that, you recognize there are four different terms that are used for communication with God. If you break them down, prayers is the general word of communication with God. What makes that word unique is that it is exclusively used with regards to God. You don't make prayers to a person. You don't make prayers to Mary. You are a person who prays to God and to Him exclusively. But the term supplication indicates a petition or a request. And it's not exclusive to God. On some occasions, those petitions may be made to someone like a king. If you went in before a king, and let's say the year had been very bad, there had been a drought, and you might go before the king and say, King, would you please, we present a petition for you to excuse our taxes for this year because of the drought. It's a petition. It's a request made before someone important. 
Intercessions is when one intercedes for another. For instance, when someone comes forward and says, would you pray for me regarding this problem or that problem? That's doing what the Bible tells us to do. James 5, verse 16, confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. But we do also understand that there are places where Paul would say, pray for us or pray that the door may be open so that we can be able to present God's word. So you have prayers, supplications, intercessions, and then giving of thanks or thanksgiving. That's exactly what the name means. So when you and I pray, there are times when we are in our prayers addressing God as the only one to whom we can approach and can answer our prayers. Part of our prayers are requests, supplications, where we ask God for things that we feel we might need. Part of our prayers is praying for other people and their needs. And then part of prayer is giving thanks for what you and I have been so well blessed with. Now the second question, and let me preface this question. Uh, I've gotten this request from at least two people. I do not know both of them were turned in anonymously. So I didn't have a chance to go maybe ask, uh, is there something behind this? But my assumption is, is that given the current state of our society and how dangerous it is to be in so many different places, how people have had their homes invaded, how that churches have been uh, invaded by people who have shot various ones, people who have gone to public venues, be able to go... And there's a lot of concern. I noticed that tonight they're going to have a, a lot of security in Nashville for their fireworks display that they're going to have there. And so the question is asked, is it wrong to respond with self-defense? And I think particularly here, maybe lethal, killing someone. And then the follow-up question that was at least on one of the uh, ones that was turned in, what about turning the other cheek? Now, as a person explores God's Word, this may be a little more deep than we realize because there are a lot in the Bible to talk about this particular subject. So I want to split it up. I want to deal with both parts of the question. And the first one is, is self-defense permitted? And to do that, we've got to go to God's Word to seek the answer. And if you will, open your Bibles with me to the book of Exodus to chapter 22. And we'll look at verses 2 and 3. While you're turning to Exodus 22, let me give you a little bit of background. This is not only Israel's civil law, but this is Israel's religious law. This is where God is telling Israel, this is the way that you are to handle various issues that come up within society. If the thief is found breaking in, and he is struck so that he dies. There shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. I would like to make a couple of observations as you look at this. Number one, it is the thief that is being discussed. The thief is broken in. It is contemplated at nighttime. 
It would be dark, and so it would be difficult to know whether the thief had broken in to do that person harm or to steal what that person has. If it happened at night and the person was killed, there would be no guilt for bloodshed. The person would not have to stand before the courts and answer what he had done. On the other hand, if the sun had risen and the thief is taking property, this is not a threat for life, but taking a property, there would be guilt for his bloodshed. Now if you go with me to the book of Nehemiah, to chapter 4, verse 11. There are several passages we're going to need to explore. And while you're turning to Nehemiah, chapter 4, the children of Israel had returned from the Babylonian captivity. Nehemiah was the governor, and Nehemiah was a prophet for God as well. Nehemiah was leading the children of Israel as they were rebuilding the wall to the city of Jerusalem. There were at least three main ringleaders of the troublemakers, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And these three men were trying to prevent them from repairing the wall. And so as we get to chapter 4, he said, And our adversaries said, They will neither know nor see anything till we come in their midst and kill them, and cause their work to cease. Now this is a challenge of where a person's own personal safety is being put at risk. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came, they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings. And I set the people according to their families with their swords, with their spears, and with their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the leaders and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Now verse 16, we're skipping verse 15. So it was that from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held spears and shields, the bows, and wore armor and the leaders were behind those all of the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves with so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other hand they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had a sword girded to his side as he built. And one, the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and to the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work. And half of the men held spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, Let each man and his servants stay at night in Jerusalem, that we there may be a guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I nor my brethren, my servants nor the men who guarded followed me, took off our clothes except everyone took them off for washing. So you can see that during the time of Nehemiah that not only were the people threatened but 
they were instructed to be able to carry a weapon even while they were working on the wall. And so they did have a right to defend themselves. In fact, were expected to do so. Now if you'll turn with me to the book of Esther, and we'll turn to chapter 8, and verses 11 and 12, and then we'll look at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 5. While you're turning there, I'll remind you of the events of the book of Esther. Queen Esther was a Jew, and she was elevated to a queen in the king's harem. And her uncle, Mordecai, was a man of faith and conviction. He would not bow down before Haman, who was one of the leaders of the king. And so what he did in chapter 3 was he sought, Haman did, to have all the Jews killed and had the king to make a proclamation for their killing. And what happened was, is after that was exposed to the king, he said, I can't change the law But what I can do is permit the Jewish people to defend themselves. And so when you get to chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, by these letters the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all those forces of any people or province who would assault them, both their little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. You see, King Ahasuerus recognized the need of these people to protect themselves, and he gave them permission to protect themselves. In chapter 9, verse 1, on that day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, and that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. And then if you get to verse 5, thus the Jews defeated their, all their enemies with a stroke of the sword, with slaughter, with destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. Now I know that you're looking at that and you're saying, well, that was Old Testament when God allowed people to be a little more ruthless and a little more uh, stern as they dealt with people. But I want you to go with me now to the New Testament. Let's go to Luke chapter 11 and verse 21, and then we'll see the parallel passage in Mark 3. Luke 11, verse 21. In this passage, Jesus is talking about a man who has been overtaken by an unclean spirit. And he's trying to point out a parallel between real life and what was happening with these unclean spirits. He said, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. Jesus recognized the right of a person to guard his place. And notice he says, fully armed. Mark 3.27 says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man, and then he will plunder his house. If a man is defenseless, then he can be plundered. But you know, that's not the only place where the Lord discussed things like this. If you go with me now to Luke chapter 22, the events that he's describing here are the night in which he's going to be betrayed. And he's trying to prepare the disciples for what they're going to face. And he's going to rehearse with them something they have previously faced 
and how they dealt with it and how things were going to be different. And he said to them, When I sent you out without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said nothing. Then he said to them, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. So he said to, they said, Lord, look, there are two swords, or here are two swords. He said to them, it is enough. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. I want you to observe the Lord now tells them that if they do not have a sword to sell a garment to buy one. When they tell the Lord they have two swords, the Lord said, that's enough. We don't need more. I would say that most of you have probably already derived the idea that in the Bible there was the right for a person to have a weapon, whether a sword, a bow, a shield, or maybe even a club of some kind, to be able to defend themselves, and righteously so. But that brings me to the second part of the question is, what about Jesus being the Prince of Peace? What about the passage that says we ought to turn the other cheek? Why did Jesus rebuke Peter when Peter used the sword? We're going to go to Matthew 26 and verse 52, and we're going to look and see why perhaps the Lord rebuked Peter for doing this. If you'll remember, when the crowd of soldiers came to arrest Jesus... One of the soldiers' name was Malchus. And when he came and he was ready to take Jesus, Peter drew the sword, evidently he had one of the two, and he struck and cut off Malchus's ear. The Lord told Peter, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now when you read that, you might think the Lord, now being the Prince of Peace, is saying to Peter, Peter, there's no occasion that unless you're going to always use a sword, you're going to be a man of the sword. But I believe the proper answer is found in the Gospel of John as Jesus explains the events that he was about to face. In John 12, 27, he said, My soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus did not want to prevent his arrest and his death and his resurrection. In chapter 18 and verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Peter, in taking the sword, was attempting to stop the arrest of Jesus. But Jesus had already determined that that needed to take place. And so he was telling Peter, if you live by this sword, you will die by it. Had Peter continued on and Jesus and others had resisted, very likely there would have been a bloodshed that night. In John 18, verse 36, though, we read something else that's relevant. 
And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. What the Lord is saying is that we, as His church, are not a warmongering group of people. We don't fight physical battles. In fact, Paul explained this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. He said, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Yes, he is saying that we do war, but our war is a spiritual one, not a physical one. Now we go back to Luke chapter 6 and verse 27. And you look at it in its context, and it would be very easy to remove this passage from its context and have it say something that we shouldn't draw from it. But I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer him the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold from him your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask for them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. And what the Lord was addressing was an attitude that was prevalent among the people of that day. And that was, is, if somebody does something to you, do it back to them. In other words, return evil for evil. You ought to be a people who can seek revenge. And the Lord is saying, no, that's not the correct. But you should not take this passage to have the Lord saying that we should allow people to do anything and everything they want to do to us. So for that reason, I believe there's at least four principles that we can draw from this. Number one, one must be a person of peace and not quarrelsome and violent. One should never wish the death of another. If you do defend your own personal safety, you ought to pray to the Lord that you'll never have to use a weapon of any kind on anyone else. And that if you did, it was only a matter to preserve your own life or your family's. Number two, one must learn to respect the laws of the land as long as they do not conflict with the laws of God. In this case... Like in the case of Esther, when King Ahasuerus permitted the people to defend themselves, our government, through what is known as a castle law, has provided that you and I can defend ourselves personally. The reason why it's called a castle law is because your home is your castle. And so if someone invades your home, you have a right to defend yourself. The law provides for that. So we need to make sure that we respect the laws and that the laws that are provided for us, we can use those. And I would point out there's a difference between killing and murder. While the state is authorized to use lethal force, 
In Romans 13 and verse 4 is very plain, very clear. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. God put the government there for that very purpose. And we have to realize the government provides us self-defense, but the government does not provide for us revenge. It's one thing for someone to break in your home and try to take your life, and you have to kill them for that. On the other hand, if you become mad at your neighbor and you say, I'm going to go to his house and take his life, then you have then committed murder. So there's a difference between killing and murder. And then finally, the idea of this uh, turning the other cheek has all been misappropriated and misinterpreted. Because if you go to John chapter 18 and verse 23, when Jesus was struck on the cheek, He answered, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why did you strike me? There are times when a person should have the right legally to say, why are you mistreating me? I hope that answered the question. I know it was a little longer than I expected it to be, but that's, I tried to present the biblical evidence on it. Question number three and the last one is, Did Moses see God's face? And this is found in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. But the person also in the question made reference to verse 20. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Now, some allege there's a contradiction here. In fact, if you read the critics of the Bible, they will cry frequently and say, In the very same chapter, you have it said that Moses spoke to God face to face, and then Moses could not see God's face. Let's look at the term face-to-face. It does not necessarily mean that a person sees another person's face. It means that they are in close contact in communication. Let me give you two or three illustrations. Numbers 12, verse 8. I speak with him face-to-face, even plainly, not in dark sayings. Numbers chapter 12, or verse 14, verse 14. He said, and... They will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard you, Lord, are among these people, and that you, Lord, are seen face to face. Now look at his explanation. And your cloud stands above them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That says he spoke to Israel face to face. And we know that it was simply God's direct, close communication with them. And then the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 4. Man in his natural or current state cannot see God in his natural state. Man may see manifestations of God, but in his current state he cannot. If you go on and read Exodus 18, or verses 18 through 23 of Exodus 33, 
you'll remember that Moses wanted to see God, but God said, you can't do that and live. So what God did was to place Moses in the cleft of the rock, pass by him so that he could only get a glimpse of the backside. And he says, but my face shall not be seen. When I go to the New Testament, 1 John 1.12 says, no one has seen God at any time. Or I go to 1 Timothy 6 and verse 16. He says there that whom no man has seen or can see, talking about God. But if you go to 1 John 3 verse 2, Beloved, we are now children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him even as He is. That's when you get to a different position and a different place and are able to see God in eternity. So I get to the end now and I ask the question, do you want to see God? Generally, when we present the invitation, we present the steps that one must go through in order to become a Christian. I'm afraid sometimes we leave out some of the steps that are necessary. Matthew 5 and verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart. A person who wants to see God cannot do so just because he says, Well, I don't want to be lost. Or maybe I'll just go through the motions. No, it's got to be purity of heart. That's the reason why when Peter, or excuse me, Philip, was discussing with the eunuch, he said, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip said to him, If you believe with all your heart, you may. Jesus is the only way. You know, he said in John 14, verses 1 through 3, he said he was going to prepare a place. In verse 5, Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way you get to see God is by doing what Jesus taught you to do. And that is to believe in him to repent of your sins, to confess your faith in Him, and be baptized. And I'm sure that here in our audience this morning, we have some people who are thinking about that. You know you need to do it. It's a great privilege for you this morning. Jesus asked in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord bids you come. If you need to become a Christian or you need as a child of God to be restored, would you come now as together we stand and sing?